God is good. And all the time. All right, let's try again. God is good. And all the time. Pretty awesome. Amen. Also, uh, it's been a while since I've been here, and it's nice to see a whole bunch of new faces, a whole bunch of kids. Your average age is lowered quite a bit, so congrats. That's exciting. <laughs> uh, and I know just from like how you guys sit, where you guys stand with the end times, um, you guys are very um, pre-tribulation because you've left room for Jesus and his 12 to come back in the front row, so I truly appreciate that. It's nice to feel, be able to tell that off the bat. So, okay, let's get serious. <laughs> So, as uh, Jeff said, um, uh, this sermon I've done before. Um, it's one that I worked on for quite a while because this was one I did in the summer and how at least we at Chapelos, we do our sermons. Uh, we'll do walking through a book, the Bible, verse by verse from September to about June or July. And then for the summer, it's really a bunch of one-offs. And I usually take throughout the year when my own personal study, when something piques my interest, I kind of make a mental note and say, that'll be a summer sermon. So I kind of have this long time to prepare. And this was one of those. I listened to a podcast, and someone on there made a, just a passing comment about Ezekiel. I was just driving and listening. I said, oh, that's kind of interesting. As good Bereans, we want to study the word on our own. So I went and I searched, and it kind of just spiraled and kind of built up speed until I couldn't just, I couldn't stop studying what this one guy said in a passing comment. So... With that said, we're going to be not going through just one verse-by-verse section, although there'll be a little bit of that. We're going to be flipping through a lot of our Bibles, so I encourage you to have your Bibles ready. If you take notes, be prepared to take notes in your Bibles, Um, because we're going to really cover um, Genesis to the end in large chunks. Um, And I know we're a very practical church. I know how you guys are taught, um, because we're all from the same cut, from the same cloth. Uh, We like being practical. If the Bible's not practical, then what's the point? This has kind of a longer-term practical effect as we look further um, into our own spiritual life. And what I have found, this may not be practical on my day-to-day, Monday to Friday, but this really bolsters my prayer life. And what's been cool is that as I've listened to Andrew over the last little while, you guys have really um, exploded with prayer and making that like a real core of Genesis House. And so I really hope that this sermon is going to be helpful for when you guys go to pray, who's the God that we choose to pray to? What is God? Who is he? Who does he say that he is? Because the titles of God aren't just titles. They're actually who he is. So uh, with that said, if you will stand with me, we are going to read Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18. Matthew 16, 13 to 18. And I'll read this nice and loud. of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Church, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
do want to read one other section. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribes. This is the God we serve. Amen? Amen. This whole sermon today is honing in on the title God of gods. What does that actually mean? For us in the 21st century, it is just a title, but for the people of Israel, whether it was in Egypt or under Rome or under Babylon or under Canaan, the title God of gods was real. It meant something to them. So what we're going to do, we're going to walk through the Bible underneath when God's people were underneath any other nation. Like I said, Egypt, Canaan, Babylon, Rome. God goes out of his way to prove himself to be God of gods. So what we will see, and why we'll fly through them somewhat quickly, is that when God's people are underneath another nation, God will attack the chief God of that nation by declaring himself to be God of gods. We'll see that in a couple places. We can read the Bible as we have it in English in black and white, and we can get the point. If we know nothing else other than what we read on these pages, we can understand the point of the gospel, and that is the beauty of the Bible. We can read it, we can understand it, we can understand salvation for all mankind. When we read the Bible, and we understand the context, the history, the archaeology, the, the stuff surrounding the Bible, the cultures surrounding the Bible, the Bible doesn't gain new meaning, but it does go from black and white to being in color, to having depth to it. And that's what today, I hope and pray, will bring to our understanding of the Bible. One last thing. Because we are talking about the title God of Gods, I will refer to the God that we serve as Yahweh. I will, I will call it Yahweh because we're going to be talking about the gods of Egypt or the God, the chief God of. So I will refer to our, the God we serve as Yahweh, just so we're clear. Not that I'm comparing that that's any gods are on par with, with Yahweh, but just so there's a clear distinction in, in vocabulary there. Okay. With that said, <clears throat> we want to start in the garden. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates this perfect world, Adam and Eve, the image and the likeness of God. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's man having perfect harmony with God for two chapters. We get to chapter 3, and it all falls away. Why? Because of one sin. Because the devil comes along and tempts and tells man, you can be like God. Wouldn't that be great? You can be like God. And this perfect world that was created is instantly fractured and shatters because now we want to be like God. It's this desire to worship and to be like God. Now, after that, we get into the Tower of Babel where people try to um, make a name for themselves in the heavens. Let's build this tower and we can make our names in the heavens. That doesn't last for long because the writer of Genesis says, and God came down, Yahweh came down and confused their language. Why? Because there will only be one name in heaven, Yahweh. And now as we look at these other nations, we get into Egypt and so on, we have to understand that the ancient world wasn't stupid. When they worshipped idols of stone, of clay, of metal, or wood, they genuinely believed that something was behind there. They weren't stupid. And we know this 
from both Old and New Testament. Taking the wrong way. Both Moses in Deuteronomy and Paul in the New Testament talk about the, the idols that were sacrificed to, the gods that the nations and Israel, when they go wayward, that they sacrificed to. They weren't just images. There was something behind it. Moses talks about why would they sacrifice to strange gods that they have never known. And Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the pagans that they sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. We believe and the Bible says that behind these images there is actual entities, demons. Now that's not to make us afraid or scared. This sermon will do the opposite. But the ancient world was not stupid. They genuinely believed that there was real power behind these things because to some degree there was power. We know that the enemy has real power in this life. But as we'll see, God will never let any other God compare to him. Yahweh goes out of his way to establish and to prove himself to be the God of gods. One of the first places we see this happen is in Egypt. The first real divine showdown between Yahweh and another so-called God is found in Egypt. Now, many of us may have heard that the ten plagues of Egypt were, was where Yahweh goes after ten gods of Egypt. How many of you have heard that before? Some of us? Yeah, I, I tend to fall into, I, I tend to believe that as well. I'm not going to talk about that, though, because there's one thing that happens right before the ten plagues. Can anyone tell me? What's the event that happens right before the ten plagues? There's one small event. Any guesses? Yeah. He turns them into snakes. The rods turn into snakes. So this is found, if you have your Bibles, if you want to keep track, this is Exodus 7. Exodus 7, 10 through 12. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a snake. Okay, that alone, that should be enough for Pharaoh to be like, you can have your people. Wood turning into snake, take him, go. Pharaoh, he looks at this, and he summons the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. This is three verses right before the ten plagues. And what we miss in our English Western church context is really what is going on behind the scenes here. In Egypt, in southern Egypt, in Goshen, where the pharaohs lived, the chief god of the lower lands was a snake. The chief god that ruled, protected, was also the god of magic, was a snake. If you look... Uh-oh. You saw it for a second there. You can Google any photo... Not touching it. You can Google any photo of a pharaoh, and if he's wearing his ceremonial headdress, you will see a snake coiled around his head coming off the front. And that is because every pharaoh wanted to have this chief snake over him because it was the protector of Egypt. You can see it there. Now, this chief snake wasn't just the chief snake over the lower lands of Egypt, the lower side of Israel. This chief snake was also the god of the dead, one of the god of the dead. And his role was when someone dies, he would take the soul of the dead and reunite it with the body. Off the bat, before the ten plagues of Egypt, God tells Moses and Aaron a very specific thing. Go and throw down your staff and watch. 
Maybe Moses and Aaron didn't know what was going on, but Pharaoh and his courts knew exactly what was going on. When they saw the snake, they go, we have our God. Our God over Egypt can do this too. And they throw their snakes down as I'm sure they were worshiping their snake God. And their staffs turn into snakes and they go, Yahweh is no better than lower Egypt. And as they're watching, Aaron's staff slowly eats up all the other snakes. Aaron goes up and grabs the tail and it turns into a staff. And I'm sure if he was very dramatic, he would point to Pharaoh and said, we will see you tomorrow. <laughs> what we miss, the chief god of Egypt, this lower land, I'm not going to try and pronounce his name, but this chief snake god, it's only recently that we understood how this snake god became a god. It's because in, Egypt, in Egyptian mythology, this snake ate seven other snakes to gain god power. Egypt worshipped the snake because he can eat these other snakes and he is the god, then we want to worship that god. And Yahweh says to Moses and Aaron, we're going to tackle their chief god. We're not sure how many snakes um, Aaron's staff would have eaten. I like to assume it was seven because Pharaoh's jaw would have dropped. We have only seen this in myths. Only in our ancient history have we understood that this snake god ate other snakes to begin god power. But now this, these two shepherds and this Yahweh god that we pretend not to know about comes in and he eats up our snakes. That's power. God establishing himself as god of gods, even in Egypt. This is something that I don't have a slide for, and I didn't add this with... Um, with my church, because this came after. Flip to Exodus um, 13. Sorry, 14. Before the ten plagues, God goes after the chief god of the lower lands of Egypt. When Egypt leaves, sorry, when Israel leaves Egypt, God will attack the god of the north. <clears throat> Exodus 14, 1 and 2. Just so you know, this is after the ten plagues, before they cross the Red Sea. So right before this, God was leading them out of Egypt, and they kind of go up to the Philistines, and God says, I want them to turn around lest they see war and get scared. So they're coming back right now. So they haven't crossed the Red Sea yet, but God says this. And the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp at Pihirahoth, between Midgold and the sea in front of Balzaphon. You shall encamp facing it right by the sea. Now, triangulation, if you have three points, you can figure out where something's coming from. Unfortunately, we don't know where any of these three points are. If we could find this, we could find exactly where Israel crosses the Red Sea, which is super cool in and of itself. Although we don't know where these places are, we do know what Balzaphon was. Balzaphon was a Canaan god that was also shared by the Egyptians. This Canaan god had a temple, hence Balzaphon. Specifically, somewhere in between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea because this god was god of the maritimes. This was the god of ships and trade and the sea. God says, I need you to turn around and I need you to stand in this exact place. Moses, trust me, face this place and wait for me to show up. Moses does and they encamp and God shows up and he splits the Red Sea. But do you know what Pharaoh is thinking this whole time? Pharaoh is thinking, I caught them. 
Yeah, Yahweh can take them out of Egypt, but Yahweh doesn't know where they're going. They went up, they're coming back, and he literally says, if you read the next couple verses, Yahweh has got them trapped. Israel's stuck between the wilderness and the sea. They can't go anywhere. We got them. And as the people of Israel are also wondering, are we got by Egypt? Are the gods of Egypt going to win? That's when Yahweh tells Moses, stand up and raise your staff and wait upon me. And the power of God shows up and splits the sea. When God goes to rescue Israel and Egypt, he says, I'm going to take and prove myself to be God over the south. And as soon as we're leaving, I'm going to prove myself to be God over the north. I am God of gods. Now we miss that in our English. But the Egyptian context, they knew exactly what Yahweh was doing. They knew that there was only one God, and his name was Yahweh, because Yahweh conquered every God of Egypt. That's a good God, amen? Now, as they leave, the, uh, the people of Israel, they leave Egypt. And they go into the wilderness. They go into the wilderness for 40 years. And as they're in there for 40 years, um, God says, okay, it's time for you to go take the promised land, the land of Canaan. So what do they do? They cross over the Jordan. And Joshua sends 12 spies. And he sends these 12 spies. And they meet this woman named Rahab. And Rahab says, your Lord is God. He is God in, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And if you keep reading that, she says, we all know what happened in Egypt. That was over 40 years prior to this. And she says, we all know what your God did to the gods of Egypt. We know what Yahweh is. We believe it. And we're scared. They enter the land of Canaan. Israel enters and they conquer the land of Canaan. They settle in there. And it looks like the Bible is going to end well. They got the land. But as they land in the land of Canaan, this united Israel fractures into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And it's this divided kingdom. And as this divided kingdom kind of spreads and grows and keeps going, what we see is that the gods of Canaan begin to influence and make their way into the people of Israel. Specifically, the one we probably know the most, the god Baal. This was the main god of Canaan. This god, Baal, was the heaviest influence of Israel and a constant stumbling block for a good third of the Bible. This god, Baal, was the this supposed Canaanite god of fertility, of rain, of weather, of lightning, of war, of sailors, so on and so forth. He was the god of Canaan, and it's the one that Israel worshipped the most. And God had enough. Yahweh had enough. He says to his servant, Elijah, is it Elijah? Elijah, the, the Tishbe of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, Ahab is probably laughing because he says, I worship Baal. Can you really think this Yahweh God can stop the rain? I worship the God of rain. But for the next three and a half years, not a drop falls on the land of Israel. You think after three years of drought, that would be enough for Ahab and the people of Israel to go, maybe this Yahweh guy is actually, actually legit. But after three and a half years of no rain, it comes down to it. It comes down to God having another divine showdown with another so-called God. This is in 1 Kings. This is 1 Kings 18. Elijah, 
Elijah. He draws the people near. The divine showdown is going to happen. He draws the people near, and he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if, if Baal, then follow him. And the people didn't answer. I wonder why. So they go to Mount Carmel. Elijah, by himself, talks to the 400 prophets of Baal and says, you build your altar, and whatever God answers by fire, that will be the God of Israel. The 400 prophets take that bet. They begin, they build their altar, they break up their cow, and they put it on the altar, and they start singing and dancing, trying to invoke Baal to come and do something, and nothing happens. Well, they sing a little louder, and they get out their swords and start cutting themselves, and now they're bleeding, and they're screaming, trying to get this chief god, Baal, to answer by fire, and nothing happens. Elijah has enough and says, okay, my turn. Now with Elijah, there's no shouting. There's no cutting. There's no dancing. He prays. And he prays, this is 1 Kings 18, 37. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God that you will turn back their hearts. Yahweh, would you make your name great in Israel today? Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed and burnt the offerings and the wood and the stone and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Anybody else have goosebumps? Picturing yourself there? Man, we've worshipped this God ball for so many years. Yahweh shows up and he says, there's no one but me. There is no one but me. Now, although Yahweh has proved himself these two times, and countless other times that I haven't mentioned to be God of gods, the people of Israel still have a hard time committing to Yahweh. And they eventually forget Yahweh continue to worship other gods. And they get thrown into exile. This is the 70-year exile. And they get thrown into a new land. They're no longer in Canaan. They're in Babylon. They're in a new land with new gods, but the same question is still there. Is Yahweh still God here? Can Yahweh still be God here? Nebuchadnezzar, he conquers Jerusalem, and he brings the people of Jerusalem, people of Israel, into exile, into Babylon. The Jews are brought away from their promised land. They're brought away from all that they know into a new place, to a new kingdom where the king himself believes himself to be a god. I don't think we can truly understand how scary this would have been for the Israelite people. As they're making this long, hundreds-of-mile trek to Babylon, what was running through their minds must have been, where did we go wrong? Where is Yahweh? Is the gods of Babylon really bigger than Yahweh? Some exiles were brought into the capital of Babylon, Susa. You can read about that in Daniel. Others were scattered through other cities, but the majority of them were sent to a specific place, which is mentioned in Ezekiel. You can turn to Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel 1, verse 3. And this is where 
he says. Ezekiel 1, 3 mentions it. You can circle it because it comes up multiple times in the book of Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Kabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. The Kabar Canal. Nebuchadnezzar was famous for building projects. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon was probably the most famous, but Nebuchadnezzar had kind of a spending spree, and he wanted to build these lavish things. So one of the things that he built was a personal canal that went from the Euphrates to the Tigris his own personal royal canal so he could transport himself back and forth. And recent archaeology suggests, highly suggests, that it was the Jews in exile that built this canal. Now, all the research that I have done says that this, this canal, this Kabar Canal, is located in the modern city of Nippur. And this place was only known for one thing in the ancient world. The mountain house. Wow, is right. <laughs> what kid doesn't want to play in the mud? The mountain house. The Kaber Canal. I don't remember where the, the canal was in relation to this photo. But the Kaber Canal rested at the base of this house. And now, for Babylon um, and the Samaritans before them, this was the place where all of the gods lived. This was Mount Olympus, literally before Mount Olympus. Everyone believed, all of Babylon believed, this is where all of our gods lived. And we're going, really? Where? <laughs> this is where they lived. All of them believed that their gods had a physical location, and this was it. And Nebuchadnezzar brings the Jews in and says, I need you to build me this canal in the shadow of Mount Olympus, in the shadow of this place where all of my gods live. Now the gods that lived here were gods of everything from the wind to sailing to fertility to crops to uh, lightning to everything, all of them. They all lived in one place. And so what is really interesting is that as the Jews are here and they're running, is Yahweh here? Can Yahweh still be God here? Ezekiel gets this vision. This is now Ezekiel 1 verses 4 and 5. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness all around it and fire flashing forth continually and the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. Their appearance, the, yeah, and this was their appearance. And he goes on to talk about what their appearances are like. Why, why do I mention this? I mention this because this isn't describing Yahweh. This is just describing the messengers of Yahweh. And yet, the gods of Babylon hardly compare to even the messengers of Yahweh. The gods of Babylon that all of Babylon worshipped and praised, that they believed physically lived in this mountain house, Ezekiel says, I saw a vision, and you would not believe just the messengers of Yahweh, how beautiful they were. And obviously, if you keep reading Ezekiel 1, he goes into one of the craziest descriptions of Yahweh that we have in the whole Bible. Is Yahweh still here? You bet. Even in the mountain, even in the shadow of this pagan house that houses all the gods of Babylon, the supposed gods of Babylon, Yahweh is still here. 
Yahweh is still real. He's still better than anything else around. Now, as Christians in the modern world, there are places that you and I physically go to because we drive around or we visit that we feel are spiritually dark places. Everybody get that feeling as you drive around? I just feel this place is spiritually dark. Edmonton. (laughs) These dark places affect us. We feel it. That's how the Jews felt in Babylon. This is a spiritually dark, dark place. Can Yahweh still hear my prayers here? Is, am I, is it just me here? It sounds a lot like Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take my wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall guide me, hold me. Whether we're in the darkest place in Edmonton or in Babylon, Where can we go that we can hide from the presence of Yahweh? Nowhere. There's nowhere on earth, nowhere on this planet that God created, where there is anything that compares to the God of gods. Amen? I don't have this in my notes, but what's interesting, I think it's in Exodus 6, God says to Moses, um, just so you know, your, your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they didn't know me by a name. All they knew me was God Almighty. In our, in our translations, it's God Almighty, but what it really is, is just God of power. As we read through the entire book of Genesis, they don't have a name for God. They just know God of power. I serve the God of power, God Almighty. As I was studying and doing this, that's all I could think about. Man, we serve a God of power. Even going out of his way to show it, do you really think these other gods have power? Let me show you. Even my angels, even my ministers are better. Anyway, last part. As we move into the New Testament, Jesus shows up. And he's not under Babylon, he's not under Canaan, but he is under the Roman Empire. And he says the passage that we are at now, Matthew 16, that I read at the beginning. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he stayed relatively close to Galilee. He's really close to just this one section. Only two times in his whole ministry does he venture outside. He goes up to um, kind of near Tyre and then back. The only other time is this time Caesarea Philippi. And he only goes up for about a week or so. And he goes up to the district of Caesarea Philippi and he has this crazy conversation with his disciples and with the people around him. But he does it because just like in Egypt and Canaan and Babylon, Jesus is going to make a point, a very strong point, about the gods around him, the so-called gods around him. This is a photo of at Caesarea Philippi. It was known for, the, for a cave at the base of the mountain. And your fearless leader, Andrew, went to this cave, brave soul. And so this cave is Caesarea Philippi. This is where Jesus would have been. Now, in Jesus' day, it would have looked a little different. Um, there was a massive earth, earthquake that really shifted the landscape. In Jesus' time, this cave would have had a massive rushing river coming out of it, a huge torrent coming out of it. 
it was wildly terrifying. And this cave was a place where both um, Babylon, Persia, Canaan, Rome, the Greeks, even wayward Jews would go to worship here because this, this cave was mystical to them. It's pitch black. If you walked in for, uh, far enough, you'd find that there is a pit in this cave. The Greeks and the Romans, over their times, they built ropes. As long as they could physically build their ropes and they lowered it down, they could still not touch the bottom. And so they believed that this was the gate of hell, this bottomless pit in the back of this cave. And there is one god that they believed lived in this cave, the god Pan. Now this god Pan was a half-goat, half-man creature, kind of looked like a fawn. And it's where we get our modern word for panic. What you would do, if you wanted to worship this god, you would go into this cave by yourself, pitch black. And if you could stay in there long enough, without getting scared, without panic washing over you, hopefully something, something of knowledge would be revealed to you. If you ran out, it's because panic, the god, of, the god Pan, forced you out because you were too scared to stay in there. But people would come and they would see if they could stay in there long enough and how they would worship other forms of worship was that they would take goats and literally throw them into the water. If the goat survived, that means it was a good sacrifice. If not, the, the goat would literally burst open on the rocks and would just flood. It's said in uh, Greek history that literally there's so many offerings going into this Russian river coming out that it just ran red constantly. There was just so many sacrifices coming out that it literally never ran normal color. It was just red. Beside here, if you were to go up to the right, in Jesus' time, there's about 14 different temples and shrines here that were being constantly uh, worshipped and sacrificed at. If you go on a, a modern Israel tour, and they'll bring you to this place, they'll actually call this the supermarket of gods, because you could worship anything there. Caesar, Zeus, Pan, anything. Anything was here to worship, and it was loud, it was noisy, it was pagan, by definition. And yet it's here where Jesus brings his disciples and he asks them, who do the people say that I am? Who am I? It's a very important question with an incredible backdrop behind Jesus. With people hollering and throwing goats into water and people screaming and dancing and goats making all sorts of noses, Jesus saying, who do the people say that I am? And Peter famously responds, well, you're the, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? <laughs> Peter says, you are son of the living God. You are the Christ. With all these so-called gods behind Jesus being worshipped, Jesus, a fisherman from Galilee, saying, who do the people say that I am? But who do you? You disciples, you who follow me, who am I to you? And there's only one answer. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, you really are the God of gods. Jesus responds to Peter. And he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In a place, in a physical place, where it would have been hard to hear yourself think over everything, screaming and noise and music, and, and just worship to anything other than Yahweh. Peter gets knowledge revealed to him. 
And it's not because he went into a cave hoping to, to be brave. He's out in the light, following Jesus, and God the Father reveals to him, this is my son, the God of gods. Jesus finishes with this powerful statement. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The disciples who would have heard that in that moment, it would have not been lost on them. Just the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi, the cave, the cave of knowledge, the gate of hell that everyone believed was literally behind Jesus. Jesus says, don't worry. What you just said, Peter, the truth of the gospel, the truth of who I am, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, that will not die. The gate of hell will not prevail against the church. Amen? It will not prevail against the church because we worship one ruler, one giver of truth, one Christ, and one God of gods. Amen? God Almighty. Caesarea Philippi is a place where people come to worship many different gods, and Jesus asks, Am I just one of these gods to you? And the disciples, a true disciple of Jesus says, there is no one other than you. Us in this room who follow Jesus, there is no one who can hold a candle to Jesus. In a place where people came in vain to get a revelation, to go into a cave to hopefully not be scared because they want some sort of revelation, Yahweh reveals truth to Peter. Not in a cave, not in fear, but in truth. In a place where people believe that the literal gate of hell was, Jesus prophetically declares that the gate of hell will not prevail against the church, and Christ himself will be the rock on which the church is founded on. I know I've gone long, so I'll wrap this up. <clears throat> we can spend hours talking about what Jesus does here and what he does after on because it's truly magnificent and, and continues on this God of God's title. But for God, it's not just a title. It is who he says he is. And hopefully you guys have found this interesting. Because I certainly have. We don't worship idols nowadays. We don't struggle with that. But where does this work for us? And this is where I kind of want to bring it in. What does this mean for us now? In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for the, that day will not come, the day when Jesus comes back and sits in the front two rows, unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Why did this sermon mean so much to me personally? Because I've often read this and I go, man, that is so scary to think about. Because how many people are going to be led away? Some destruction will come. He's going to exalt himself over every so-called God or object of worship. But what we have just seen in a very quick half hour is that from Genesis to the end, whether it's Canaan, Babylon, Egypt, or Rome itself, there is no God that compares to Yahweh. And Yahweh goes out of his way to assert himself as God of gods. When the Antichrist comes, he exalts himself to be a God. Many will believe him. But those of us who have worshipped God Almighty, the God of power, will be waiting for Yahweh to show up and assert himself, to prove himself to be the only true God of gods 
And that's exciting to think about. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Yahweh, you are a God of God, you are a God of power, and you are my God. You are the God of this church, and I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are a personal God, that you want to know us, that you are relational. But I also love that you defend your title, your character, the God of gods. Oh, Father God, I am sorry for us as humans that we have made other so-called gods that we have worshipped over the centuries. But I'm thankful, Lord, that you from heaven reveal truth. We don't have to go to a dark cave to brave the fear to hopefully get knowledge. We have knowledge in the word of God in front of us. We have knowledge in the community of believers. We know the true and living God. And best of all, we are known by you. Bless my brothers and sisters. Bless our time in dialogue and after. In Jesus' name, amen. I just got four lessons. For those of you who are new, um, yeah, lessons, dialogue. Um, take these, take pictures if you want. Um, there's other references that I may not have mentioned, so you can look those up on your own. First one, idol worship was not just to idols of wood, stone, metal, but was to demons. Uh, Moses talks about that in Deuteronomy. Paul also talks about that in, uh, in 1 Corinthians there. Demons have power. We know that from Scripture. It's not something we need to be afraid of, but it's something we need to be aware of. Two, Yahweh consistently goes out of his way to prove himself to be the only true God. And he does that in Egypt in Exodus. He does it in um, Canaan in Kings. He does it in Babylon in Ezekiel. He does it in Rome in Matthew. Three, when the Antichrist arrives and makes himself God over all other gods and objects of worship, we know from 6,000 years of biblical history that Yahweh will show up and prove himself to be the true God of gods. Finally, four. God of gods is not just a title for Yahweh, but actually who he is. That is who God is. It's not just a fancy title he gives himself, but he will go out of his way to defend it over and over and over again. Heavenly Father, thank you for your church you died for. Thank you for your spirit within us. God, you're a good God who gives good gifts. The best gift you gave is your son. Lord, I pray that you would um, use us. Lord, that we would be humble enough to listen to the still, small voice, that we would be people who love you, love others well. We share a testimony with one another. God, I thank you for um, these two husbands who have uh, given their lives to you. Lord, would you bless them and protect them, Lord, as they have, um, you know, I don't know where the one has come from, but is coming from Buddhism to know you, Lord, would you protect him in every sense of the word as he grows in wisdom and knowledge of you? But I pray for this church, Lord, that we would be people that grow in wisdom and knowledge of you and that we would be uh, doers of the word and not just hearers of it. Bless us and keep us in every sense of the word. In church, Deuteronomy 10, 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial, takes no bribes. And all God's people said,